0: Thanks for checking out the podcast. Always appreciate you doing so. This is the best of radio show edition. If you want the best of training camp edition, I compiled all the work I did in training camp into one podcast. It's only about 25 minutes long, but it's all interviews from training camp with the Redskins players and coaches. So if you'd like to hear that, check on that podcast after you listen to this one or before. I don't really care. Just make sure you come back to this one on this one. My interview with John Wall, DC's point God Now going to be here for the next six years with the four-year extension he signed on top of the two years remaining on his deal. We talked about that and a lot more. Also on this episode, Sebastian Salazar was absolutely fantastic talking about the Neymar transfer on the radio show. Mike Jones, great as always, on the skins. And my pal Kevin Brown talking about the Nationals and Sicknarf Loopstock. Here's the pot. The moment you decide yes I'm in and you sign this extension and you, you say it out loud probably for the first time to your family your agent whoever that first person is that you told what's running through your head at that point what are kind of the emotions that you were experiencing
1: um it was great I was happy I knew where I wanted to be they knew where I wanted to be they love my family Loved definitely been three and a half hours away from me don't have to drive too far so it wasn't too hard it was easy easy process.
0: Your agency, Clutch yeah. Sports and Rich Paul, they've kind of changed the game in how a lot of NBA contracts have been negotiated the past couple of years. So how much did you talk to Rich about strategy and leverage versus some of the other things from security to how much you do love the city and, and some of those other yeah, factors that you may have been considering?
1: Um, It wasn't too bad. It was easy. He sat back. So he, he, you know, I just sat back let him do his job, and he got it done.
0: Simple as that. Pro athletes don't get to pick where they're drafted, which is why I always find the the demand for loyalty from fans kind of interesting, to say the least. With that said, once D.C. chose you, you made it home, and the loyalty and care you've shown for this city is is above and beyond, really, nearly all of your peers. Simply put, why? Why why does D.C. mean so much to you, even though you didn't pick it?
1: Um, Why not? It's amazing to see. Uh, my dad was born and raised here. I had the opportunity to come here and play it was an honor for me. You know, they showed loyalty to me, loyalty to me since day one. So I wanted to return the favor.
0: Uh, I'd say the other thing that kind of makes you unique amongst your peers is, is you have this realness to you. Um, and, and we haven't had a chance to talk one-on-one before, but I've talked to you in kind of those media scrum settings and, and talking to people who have spent some time with you one-on-one uh, on the media side. Everyone agrees that there isn't this wall that so many stars put up. Do you have any idea why you've been able to keep that authenticity when a lot of your your peers around the league and, and even in other professional sports kind of seem to put up that wall?
1: I'm just me. That's all I know how to be is real. Uh... I always go by quote the real, we never lose. Uh, and that's why I just speak my mind. I don't hold back for nothing.
0: Do you have you ever thought about maybe being more reserved in the media? Has there ever been a time where you're like, man, maybe I should just not talk as much or anything like that?
1: You no, know, because if I don't they might say he ain't talking to them when I do, it's whatever, so I just might as well get the point across. You know what I mean no point of trigger calling nothing.
0: Hey, well, we appreciate it. That's for sure, man. Uh, John Wall with us on the fan. Uh, Athletes' off-season training programs are super specific and they're well-planned and not overly creative, except for yours this summer. Um, When Jesse Phillips came to you with the idea of this cross-training program, what did you think of it?
1: Um, It was cool. I was doing everything, man, just boxing, um, versus climber class, yoga, main class, just trying all different types of stuff. And it's all been great and made it for me and different everything
0: to use for my body. What's been your favorite so far?
1: My Versa Climber class and boxing has been the favorite for me so
0: far. Those Versa Climber classes are a beast, man. To say that that's your fa- yeah, like yeah. most effective and favorite, that, that's two different questions.
1: Those have been great, though. They're, they're my favorites, though.
0: Um, what are you looking forward to doing from a training perspective this offseason that you couldn't do last season because you were rehabbing?
1: Everything I'm doing this summer is everything I wanted to do last year. I just couldn't do none of it because I was on a bed or couldn't run and stuff for like the first three or four months.
0: Was there one thing in particular when you were laying in that bed going, man, I cannot wait boxing. to do this? Wanted to do boxing. Had you tried boxing before or is that new this summer? Nah, this is my first time this year doing boxing. And I saw you were working with uh, with Sheldon Mack down in Miami. Any other teammates that you're planning on working out with this offseason?
1: Yeah, for sure. I just want to get Sheldon under my wings. I mean, that's my hook. Get him on the right path. Just try to tell him what it takes and letting him see me work every day. You know what I mean? You can see the videos, but I want him to see me work every day in person and see how hard it is to be great and want to be good in this league. and I think he has a chance to be a good player for us off the bench. It just he has to understand what it takes.
0: Yeah. By the way, if you want to check out more on John's summer workouts, ballislife.com dot com is producing a, a series. The first episode just dropped. Um, really cool insight. Um, but you've been uh, with whether it's with the workouts or just having some fun, going around the country this summer. What's the favorite trip you've taken this off season?
1: Oh, I really I, I'm going to go to Cabo uh, sometime soon. That's probably be my favorite trip. But so far, just been in Miami. Uh, you know, I stay in LA every summer to work out. I switched up this year and went to Miami. You well, know, it's been amazing, man, just seeing the weather, uh, working out there, trying to new, new things, new facilities. Only thing I hate is the rain. When it starts raining, it's over.
0: Yeah, that Florida rain is, is no joke. Uh, we got to hear some cool stories last off season of, of kind of the first time you met Scott Brooks and he's coming in right after surgery and you were in touch with him this summer with with the healthy summer and the workout programs that you're doing. How much are you in touch with Scott during the off season? I know you saw him today for the uh, the press conference.
1: Well, we talk all the time. We always joke and we always talk and wonder how we can make each other better and food and what do you think I need going to work on the that's
0: How is that different from maybe other coaches who don't have that shared experience of being a player like Scott has and specifically with Scott being a point guard in his past?
1: That's a big difference. Man, College has been a player, but also being a point guard position that I play is really helping me out a lot of understanding and how hard it was for him and how players got to him and he was me probably the best player on the team
0: john i really appreciate the time today uh congratulations on the extension and and we look forward to watching you here in dc for a long long time man all right thank you mike jones covers the redskins for the washington post been great to spend some time with him down in richmond great to spend some time with him on the radio here this morning mike hello sir good morning thanks for the time how are you
2: i'm doing well craig how you doing
0: Doing pretty well, yes, uh, myself. Uh, yesterday you had the uh, Fan Appreciation Day practice. I really was curious about how that practice would look, uh, not because of the fans in the stands, but because Jay said it was going to be a lot of game-like situations. How different was practice yesterday than some of the other practices you've seen so far?
2: Um, I think that there were maybe... Uh... A couple more um, 11 on 11 sessions, not as many special team sessions, um, some uh, goal line drills, some two minute drills. Um, you know, it was pretty similar. Just I think they replaced a couple of those special team sessions with more 11 on 11 action.
0: And then in those sessions, obviously the the practice on Thursday ends with a two minute drill session with the Josh Norman interception. Uh, of Kirk in the end zone. Uh, uh, anything stand out from the eleven on eleven? Whether it's the two minute drill, the goal line stuff, because obviously those are those are areas where they there's plenty of room for improvement from the past couple of years.
2: Yeah, they definitely looked sharper yesterday. Um, Kirk Cousins had struggled. You know, the offense really hadn't scored a lot in the the red zone. And uh, yesterday they scored. I think it was three touchdowns. Kirk Cousins had a back shoulder fade to Josh Doxson. He hit Vernon Davis on a slant. Um, cousins actually ran uh, a draw play for one. And then they had another one that was a little floater to Derek carrier up the sideline. Uh, they, they said that he got tagged before he got into the end zone, but in real life, if it was live tackling, you don't know that might've been a touchdown as well. They were, the offensive guys were celebrating like it was a touchdown. Um, so it seemed like things were clicking better there, uh, Cousins a little more aggressive, things like that. So that's what you want to see progress from uh, this offense, and it looked like it was there yesterday.
0: Mike Jones, Washington Post, with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Uh, Mike, when I was on our shows this week, got asked a bunch of questions. I'm actually curious for your answers for some of these because you've gotten to see every single practice. You have such a keen eye, uh, and also maybe you can add in a little bit of intel from, from many coaches you've talked to. Uh, one of the interesting questions I was asked, who's the best running back uh, that you've seen so far at camp?
2: Well, I mean, it, it's really hard to evaluate running backs because in these practices, they're not really live tackling. They're right. dragging a guy and then he keeps on going through. So every running back looks like he breaks a tackle. Um, you know, maybe Rob Kelly or Samaje P. Ryan might make a, a cut that's you know kind of impressive um they've both looked better than matt jones um he seems like he's kind of struggled with balance and things like that he just doesn't look very explosive so my jp run yesterday they looked like they were tackling a little bit more than normal and he looked really physical um you know when he makes up his mind he's a load Um, and you know, that was good to see, uh, Rob Kelly had set out a couple days, uh, because of a little stinger in his neck, but he was back up there yesterday. He looks quick. He looks decisive. Uh, just looks more confident. So I think you have two guys right there. And obviously Chris Thompson's always the reliable guy, um, catching passes out of the backfield, good change of pace guy. So those are your top three guys right there. Uh, Samaj P. Ryan, his main thing is going to be in pass protection, getting, you know, a good anchor and figuring out how to get leverage on guys and pick up those blitzes, which is something that even though he's the smallest guy out there, Chris Thompson does a really good job of Rob Kelly's getting better at that. But Samaj P. Ryan has a little ways to go uh, before I think they feel comfortable putting him out there in those situations.
0: Yeah. He's definitely got a lot, a lot to go on that in part because at Oklahoma, Joe- Mixon was in on a lot of those downs. I answered. Russell was the one who asked me that on the afternoon show on Friday, and I said Chris. I thought he's been the best one so far, but it's kind of weird because he kind of plays his own position. If, if something were to happen where Chris was unavailable for a game, a half, a quarter, whatever it would be, do you know who would be the third down back in that situation? Would they bring in a Mac Brown? Would they they bump Rob Kelly down? Obviously, P Ryan is not at that point yet in terms of pass pro. So, what would they do in that situation?
2: Um, well, there are there are times where you do see um, them use Kelly um, for catching, you know, passes out of the backfield, and just like their last year here and there, um, he was used on blitz protection, and and he does that and, and does it pretty well uh so i think they would feel comfortable doing that i'm not saying that they would bump him down from the number 1 spot but they'd probably just leave him on the field there haven't seen a whole lot of mac brown uh with the ones or you know on third down i think he got a couple carries yesterday um they did use him there um and you know uh, just here and there that was more than uh what we'd seen but it was just like one or two carries so i still think that that their biggest confidence obviously in those situations is chris thompson but like you said if he got hurt, Rob Kelly would probably be the guy just because he's further along of everybody and he's a former fullback. So he's definitely got no problem being physical there and knows how to block.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's probably the plan. For whatever it's worth, Mac did have a one or two that he got loose on seemingly clean on Thursday, but he is playing against the twos and the threes. He hasn't been uh, with the ones a whole lot, like Mike just said. Mike Jones of The Washington Post with me here on The Fan. Another guy I was asked about, um, you know, we get asked all the time about the rookies, obviously, because everyone likes the shiny new objects, and Jonathan Allen and Ryan Anderson get most of the pub, but their third-round pick, Fabian Moreau, Um, Danny asked me about him this week and I go, you know what? I don't really know much because he hasn't been on the field a whole lot. He hasn't done anything that's really stood out. What's the latest on him and his injury recovery? And and like, what, what are the chances that he's actually in the rotation at corner this season? Or is he just going to be a special teams guy?
2: So, I mean, they've got a long way to go before we know. I think they would like him to be there. But so far, he's still just done uh, positional drills. He got in with a little bit of special team stuff on the kickoff return unit. He was up along the front lines blocking. uh, But that was really the first 11-on-11 action he's had. They're hoping eventually, I don't know if it's the end of this week or next week, that they will put him out there. He says he feels good, and he's just waiting for them to tell him. Jay Gruden yesterday, I asked him about both Fabian Moreau and Monte Nicholson, he said, "Oh, we're just waiting on the trainers. Where they feel comfortable with these guys strength-wise, then they'll turn them loose. But they're, you know, in the meetings and they're they're learning everything, watching. But there's nothing like doing. So it's still a little early to tell. But right now, um, in that cornerback rotation, you obviously have Norman and Breland. And then when Breland went down with a groin strain yesterday, it was Dunbar was the first guy up there. And then at times we've seen Kendall Fuller move." To the outside, not just covering in the slot, he looks really good there. Obviously, they hope that this third-round pick, Fabian Moreau, can contribute at some point. But because of the depth there, they're not really pressed and having to rush him out there, which is a good thing for him and the Redskins for the long term.
0: Yeah, Josh Holsey, their seventh-rounders had a couple of nice days too, so a little bit more positional depth with the draft pick there. Uh-huh. Um, kind of everyone's favorite anecdote from this week uh, was Kirk Cousins going, and I don't know if you were standing next to Kime. I know I read it in his one of his pieces when Kirk said, hey, today wasn't my best day. Write that down after Thursday's practice. But do you think Kirk says that last year after he throws that interception and practice to Norman uh, and has a day like that, that he's okay and secure enough is kind of the way I've, I've thought about it. Is he secure enough last year to have the confidence be like, yeah, go ahead, write that down. I don't care.
2: No, I think that it's just something that he's growing and more comfortable with. Um, You know, he he knows that he has to get better, and he wants that. And I think he also, you know, it's good for a teammate to see that their leader has no problem saying, I wasn't great today. And I'm sure he told his teammates that. Um, You know, it was funny. You do see a little more confidence out of him. Uh, There was a couple days ago, I think that same day, he had missed prior on a throw, and a fan was yelling, hey, Mr. 24 million, he was wide open. Yeah, it was and Thursday. Then- Yeah, and then Cousins hit him with a hit prior with a touchdown pass after that, and he ran over to the stand, slapped the guy five, and was like, you know, here, there you go. And like, normally he wouldn't acknowledge fans or anything like that, but you just see him being more relaxed, more comfortable as a leader, um, you know, and, you know, having a little fun out there as well. So that's all good. He's taken more of a leadership role. There are times you've seen him kind of almost demonstrating pass routes to wide receivers to help them understand, no, I need you right here. Um, So that's all what you want to see from your guys. He's entering his third year as a starter. And obviously you want that growth to continue.
0: Last thing for you. Um, I know it's still early, obviously, and I'm going to do a horrible radio thing that we do to reporters and I'm going to be on the receiving end of this stuff too, which is fine. Uh, But do you have at this point in camp, maybe a surprise to make and or miss the roster a guy that people would be kind of surprised to see, oh, wow, he could make the 53 or uh, the other way around. Wow. He might actually be in some jeopardy here.
2: I think that uh, of the, the rookie class, you know, we haven't talked a whole lot about Jeremy Sprinkle, but that's a guy that yesterday, the last couple of days, it seems like he started to to really come on. It's amazing how huge he is. He's like 6'5", 250 pounds or something like that and moves really well. Um, I think that he has a really good chance to beat out Derek Carrier for that last uh, tight end spot there. Obviously, you have Jordan Reed, Vernon Davis, Niles Paul because he can play some fullback. But Jeremy Sprinkle, they're moving him all around. He's playing some fullback. He's splitting out wide. He's coming off the line, catching passes. So while you had all those veterans, you thought, uh, will he make the team? Is he going to be a practice squad guy? I don't think he's going to be possible to sneak by on the practice squad. Um, and then who, who might be in jeopardy? Um, I don't know. It's still kind of early. I haven't really seen um, a veteran that you would think, I mean, you thought that maybe Carr was already on the bubble there. Um, there hasn't been anybody that's looked really poorly that I'm thinking, oh, man, this guy might be in trouble. Uh, you know, it's only still been a week and a half yet. But we'll see.
0: Yeah, I think we'll know more in the next couple of weeks, obviously, to get a couple of preseason games going. Um, it's just there's, exactly. there's some depth to these positions, and the numbers eventually mm-hmm. are going to have to add up to 53, and we'll, we'll see, I guess, uh, when that happens. Great spending some time with you down in Richmond, man. Appreciate the time this morning. Uh, enjoy the, the week at camp, and I'll see you Thursday in Baltimore.
2: All right. Thanks, Greg.
0: I'll see you. We go to a completely different sport, a different side of the world. Uh, Sebastian Salazar is not on a different side of the world. He's just going to talk to me about an athlete who is. Uh, Sebastian, of course, used to be uh, here in D.C., CSN Mid-Atlantic locally, uh, now uh, is with ESPN covering soccer, does a great job there. Sebastian, I can't believe we haven't done this before, man. I appreciate the time this morning. How are you?
3: Hey, of course, Craig. Uh, great to be on with you. And uh, anytime you want to talk soccer, you, you know the place.
0: Yes, absolutely. All right, so let me let me uh, start with this. Obviously, we are discussing Neymar this, this morning. If the audience isn't aware, Neymar uh, has left Barcelona, uh, one of the best clubs in the world, for another one of the world's best clubs, PSG, in France. And let, let's start with some basic stuff. If you were to rank the top three to five, let's say, soccer players in the world, whatever you need to draw your line, where, I'm guessing Neymar is amongst them. Uh, and then where does he rank in that for you?
3: So I'll break it down for you this way. Everybody knows Cristiano Ronaldo Messi, right? Those yes. guys are one in 1A. And there's a sizable gap between them and number three, which for me is Neymar. However, there's also a sizable gap between Neymar at three and four through 10. So to give you an idea, he's number three, both by a lot in front and by a lot behind. I would say the only reason you don't put him in that class with a Ronaldo and a Messi is age. If you go by actual impact on the field of play, he's getting up there. He's performing at a level that is very, very high end. But Messi's 30, Ronaldo's 32. They've done some things in their career that Neymar just hasn't done yet at 25, which also makes him I think in many ways the best bet to become the world's next best player. Ronaldo and Messi at some point are going to kind of come out of their peak. And when they do, when they're out of the peak of their careers, he is absolutely the heir to the throne to be the world's best. And to be so for a while because he's really now just, just, Getting into his soccer prime.
0: Yep, just twenty-five years old. So that leads to the next question. So he's he's playing with either one or one A. Uh, that is, of course, Messi at Barcelona. They are doing quite well as as a squad. Why did he want to leave?
3: Well, there's a there's an athletic ego that I think we have to accept of anybody that's made it to the top of their sport. But to be at the top of the world's game, a guy like Neymar, obviously has been the star of his team for a long time. Now, when he went to Europe originally from Brazil, it probably didn't hurt that he went into a Barcelona team that was star-studded and had a guy in Leo Messi, who people will argue is the greatest, not of this generation, but of all time. But Neymar has now established himself as a star in his own right. And no matter what he did at Barcelona, not only was he going to be second fiddle in terms of who gets the ink in the papers, who gets the pixels online... He was also going to be second fiddle in kind of a decision making whatever Barcelona is going to do, they've got to run it by Leo Messi. if you're running it by one guy, you can't honestly then be running it by another. So I think the, the the ability to be his own player but also to run his own club, which at PSG he will have effective total control of what they do, I believe in a lot of ways, was a unique opportunity for him, and again, he's entering that part of his career where he needs to be on his own. If if we are in 10, 20, 30 years going to talk about Neymar as an all-time great, he must have done it beyond Messi's shadow. And I think we're really, people are focusing so much on, oh, he left for the money, he left for this. I truly, truly believe this was more a legacy move for Neymar than a money move.
0: Yeah, we'll get to the money in a second. Uh, Sebastian Salazar of ESPN with me, Craig Hoffman on the fan, talking about the Neymar transfer to PSG it is interesting to hear you describe it in those terms because in that way it is very Kyrie Irving LeBron James it's just that Neymar is so much better at what he does than Kyrie Irving is at what he does and that's no respect disrespect to Kyrie it's just that's how good Neymar is yes
3: it's in, it's interesting yeah so that's uh, you know a lot of my friends who maybe don't follow soccer have thrown out that comparison and you nail it right on the head right I, you correct me if I'm wrong Kyrie is not Clearly the third best player in no, the world, right? He's clearly
0: not the third best player in the world.
3: And we assume that wherever Kyrie goes, he if he is the guy, let's be honest, and correct again, correct me if I'm wrong, that team is limited. If he's truly the guy, they're not gonna win the NBA title, right? Correct. Okay, well, Neymar at PSG, because of the team they already have assembled, because of how good he is, and trust me, even with all the stars they have, he will be the guy. Plus, with the incredible checkbook and buying power behind PSG, they can make a team that can not only beat Barcelona, but can hang with a Real Madrid, who's won three of the last four Champions Leagues, can beat a Juventus, who's been dominant in Italy, can beat any of the teams from England. I think in many ways, this move makes PSG, and I got to look at the bookmakers, what they're saying out of London, But this has to make PSG right now the odds-on favor for Champions League next year, which is kind of how you validate yourself in Europe – right up there with a real madrid team that has been dominant in that competition for the better half of the last, you know, 5 5 years. It's
0: interesting too PSG is so far I mean you this not now you get to correct me if I'm wrong. They are they are so far ahead of everyone else in their league that they are much more concerned about Champions League than they are winning the league in France. Barcelona and Real Madrid are kind of a there are other very good Uh, spanish premier league teams but they are in a class on their own and then england is seen uh is is i don't want to say the best league in the world because i I think that that is probably taking it as the notoriety confusing notoriety with success but england has stronger brands than anyone else in the world so why psg for neymar and then if there's anything that i said in the setup there that is wrong feel free to correct me please
3: no, I think, I think it's, look, it's like a wine or something. A lot of people say, oh, I like the Bundesliga, the German league. Oh, I like Serie A, the Italian league. At some point, it comes down to preference. I think the leagues that you mentioned are, are pretty much considered the world's best. Let me give you some context, though, on PSG. Before 2011, PSG on the international, like the high level of European soccer, was a nobody. They weren't all so ran... They were a good team in France that did some things, but never really competed at the highest, highest echelon. They were then taken over by Qatari Sports Investments, which is basically a group funded by the state of Qatar. Their goal is kind of nebulous, but through sports to enhance Qatar's global image. So they bought PSD. They sunk a ton of money into it. They signed huge names, the name that will resonate, I think, with the most people, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And as you say... They dominated their league. They dominated one back-to-back-to-back league uh, titles, which is what they call it over there, the first division in France. Last year, they took a step back. They lost in their league. They came in second to Monaco. But the real measuring stick for the folks in Qatar into just how well PSG is doing is how they do in Champions League. Since all this investment, PSG has not made it past the quarterfinals of Champions League. And last year, they made it to the round of 16 where they were knocked out by... Barcelona in one of the most epic collapses ever and an incredible comeback led by who Neymar. So PSG is this very, very new, but kind of blossoming potential power with money behind it in a place where look, any star athlete would love to live Paris. Um, And Neymar is known as a showman. So I think, I think the Paris culture, the lifestyle fits him. Well, I think he's got a club now to call his own. And he's set up with this team in this moment to be the dominant force, not just in France, but again in Europe and 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 globally. They will be they will be the favorites for every tournament that they enter outside maybe, maybe of Real Madrid.
0: That is fantastic context and I think leads quite nicely. Into the part that is perhaps most interesting to me, and that is the finances of this. Again, Sebastian Salazar, where is
3: this money coming from? That's what everybody wants well, to know. There's that, and then why the hell
0: are they spending so much? So let's let's dive in a little bit. Sebastian Salazar of ESPN uh, with me, Craig Hoffman, here on the Fan, talking about what was a record-breaking transfer this week of Neymar to PSG from Barcelona, and it the the transfer fee. One, uh, if you could give like a, a 15-second synopsis in your answer of a transfer fee, because it's not something that we really see in American sports but it was double the previous record why did it cost so much money uh, and, and why was PSG willing to pay that literally double you never paid double market value and they did they did I mean not necessarily market value but you like you never double a record like this and they did why
3: well let me get to the why first I think you have to appreciate the unique place that both the finances of world soccer are and then also Neymar's talent he is 25 years old he's about to enter his prime 222 million euros 260 million dollars sounds like and it is a boatload of money but let me throw out another name at you that I know people will not know Kyle Walker here's the context on who Kyle Walker is he just went for 50 million pounds and at the end of last season on a team that wasn't even the best in the Premier League Spurs he wasn't even a guaranteed starter and he's a defender, which is a position that usually goes for less money. So if a non-guaranteed starting defender is worth 50 million pounds, what is, what is a player who is going to be the best player in the world for, we assume, a three- to four-year window within the next two to three years worth? he's worth at least quadruple quintuple, ten times that, whatever you want to say. So that's why you pay it. Now, the transfer fee is, is a little bit convoluted. Basically, if you're a player and you're under contract and another club wants you, they can negotiate with your club to buy your contract. And what they give your club, not what they give you in salary, what they give your club is the transfer fee. This, however, was not a a typical transfer fee situation. Barcelona was not a willing party in this. They wanted nothing to do with getting rid of Neymar. They love him. They love the, the, the incredible three-piece attack they have with him, Messi, and Luis Suarez, and they think they're set for a while. Spanish labor law demands that a Spanish footballer, Spanish soccer player, be treated like any other employee in Spain, which means that if they want, they can go get better or better-paying work. And in Spain, the employee can, with a buyout clause that is either negotiated or preset in the contract, buy their way out of their current employment and go work somewhere else. So that's unique to Spanish labor law. Other countries, other leagues in the world don't deal with this. Spanish teams have to set a buyout clause for their players, where if another club comes and can convince the player, hey, you want to come play for us? Even if the club does not want to sell you, There's a number at which they have to sell you provided that you want to go. And it's a huge disadvantage for Spanish teams. And in the past, they've set these absurd buyout clauses, numbers that were impossible to reach. To give you an idea, Cristiano Ronaldo's buyout clause, $1 billion. A billion (laughs) dollars. No one's ever going to pay that, right? Well, to be honest, they redid Neymar's deal not that long ago, October of last year, and they had a chance to reset the buyout clause at that time, they put it at 222 million euros thinking they were safe. And that was a very, very big oversight from Barcelona because they needed to take into account the incredible amount of money that is flowing into European soccer right now. And they needed to realize the unique asset that they had in Neymar and understand that if you put it at 222 million euros, there's a chance that one of these teams that's owned by effectively the state of Qatar where there's bottomless pits of money could go out could find that money and could pull this off and that's exactly what happened to Barcelona they caught a, they got caught here a little bit of sleep
0: so then that leads to the final question which is how much concern is there that the state of Qatar uh is pouring endless amounts of money from bottomless pits of money into European soccer that seems like the, the fact that a state like uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be Qatar. I don't want that to come off in, in the wrong way because of where that is in the world. It's just like any if, if Germany was doing this or if France or England as a state was spending their their money on foot, uh, on, on soccer players, on footballers like that'd be weird. So is there any concern over this uh, in Europe, specifically in France and in, in PSG?
3: I think there's some concern, obviously, you know, from people who are affiliated with clubs like Barcelona, whereas PSG now has an ownership group, Qatari Sports Investments. Barcelona is owned by the fans, the Los Socios. There's like 140,000 memberships that you can buy. You don't buy shares. You buy a membership into the club. You elect a president, and that guy runs it. So teams like that, unless they're churning in money, which Barcelona is, are not going to be able to maybe in the long run compete. But that's just the reality. 20, 30 years ago, the people who owned the biggest clubs in England were English. Now the people who own the biggest clubs in England, Germany, France, wherever it might be, are from all over the world. The ownership pool has expanded, and people with deep pockets of money from Asia, from Southeast Asia, we're seeing a lot of investment, um, from the Middle East, are now coming in. I think there's some concern... Within the higher levels of kind of European soccer, UEFA is the governing body. They put in some rules called financial fair play, which effectively hopes to prevent teams from spending more than they're bringing in revenue and keep kind of the high end, the haves, from really outspending and effectively then out competing the have-nots. The issue is there are so many loopholes. Like the Qatari state government can now sign – PSG to a rights deal for $200 million. They can sign Neymar to a deal for a separate endorsement, kick him the cash to pay out this buyout clause. And so there's a million ways for them to work around the rules that are actually quite weak to begin with. So I think there's a source of concern, but Craig, as far as what can be done with it, I don't really know that, that there's an answer. There's just money out there and people want to spend it on these incredibly marketable global brands and i don't think there's a fair way to stop them
0: i i should have stuck with soccer that's what i just learned i should have, <laughs> so should so have I not saying, hey, stopped me, me, pay, the, the pay on eight. the
3: broadcasting side is not in the hundreds no. of millions of euros range
0: <laughs> no that or i need to learn how to broadcast soccer and go to europe and see if i can work for a team i'm doing this all wrong uh sebastian we, i know you're you're traveling you're on the road right now where can we see you on tv today
3: well, I just did Sports Center for Africa, so unless any of your listeners are in sub-Saharan <laughs> Africa, they, they probably can't catch me. I do have some cool stuff coming up, though, a little bit off the soccer beat. I'm going to be on the Little League World Series from Williamsport, oh, cool. Pennsylvania, on ESPN and ABC coming up later in the month of August. So look for me then, and then pretty much any soccer property on ESPN, I'm somewhere around it, um, you know, either hosting, reporting, or calling the games. So uh, anywhere you want to find soccer on ESPN, I'll, I'll be somewhere nearby.
0: There we go. We will be watching. Sebastian, appreciate the perspective. This was awesome, man. We'll do it again soon. I, I really appreciate it.
3: Of course. Anytime,
4: Craig. Thanks for having me. Sports Radio 1067. The Fan. Sicknarf Loopstock. Sick Sicknarf Loopstock. Sicknarf. Sick narf. Sicknarf Loopstock. Sick narf. Sick narf. Sick narf loop the forces of the Lord. I heard
0: my mom cry. I heard a pray. For a bonus hour of the Hoffman Show on The Fan with you till 1 o'clock today to talk to the man who told us about SickNarf Loopstock, Kevin Brown, who we talked to last week on the show, not knowing that he was about to call a week's worth of Washington Nationals games uh, here on The Fan and the Nationals radio network. Uh, I guess good morning there, good afternoon here, my friend. How are you?
4: You know, I probably should have told you last week, but uh, I thought it would be more fun to let you know after.
0: Yeah, like when I, when I turned on my radio and was like, holy cow, there's Kevin.
4: Yeah, sorry about that. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate your time again,
0: uh, and you've had an interesting week. Uh, The the SickNarf Loopstock story uh, was the second great bit I heard this week from you after the Randy Lurch story, which came uh, after Max Scherzer gets hurt in that game earlier this week. Um, I know Dusty didn't wind up talking today, but do you have any idea what they're going to do beyond today with the pitching staff, not knowing what, really what anyone uh, is is where anyone is at health-wise, uh, including Gio Gonzalez, whose wife is about to give birth to a child.
4: Yeah, it's a strange spot because the top three pitchers in the rotation, for one reason or another have some kind of issues going on. The hope is that Max is going to kick off the homestand tomorrow. He talked yesterday to some reporters and said he was feeling fine. It would be on regular rest. So the hope is that there will be no issues and that the next spasms have been dealt with. Steven Strasburg, we're told, is still on a throwing program. Not sure when a bullpen might be for him. we not getting specifics as far as Strasburg is concerned and then we haven't heard any word yet uh, about Gio and his wife but he was placed on the paternity list a couple of days ago oh we have we have heard actually breaking news here from the booth yeah uh, his wife had a boy so there you go so that's wonderful news yeah so congratulations to Gio and Leanne the whole uh, Gonzalez crew so it's two boys for Gio, so he's going to have his hands full off the field now. Uh, so hopefully he'll be back in rotation soon. I mean he's on the paternity list, you know he'll be on for a couple of days. So Eric Fetty makes the start today. Gio should be back soon. Max should be back soon. We're not sure about Strasburg, but uh, we know those two will be in the rotation this week.
0: Yeah, you've been so you've been around this team all week now. What's kind of the vibe around the team, knowing that all of the pitching staff day to day, there's there's real uncertainty there
4: yeah it 's just sort of a touch and go thing. I think the vibe would be markedly different if the team was forty four and sixty four as opposed to sixty four and forty four uh, it 's dusty didn 't seem particularly concerned you know they 've kept AJ Cole around if they need him for another start. Fetty was gone for a couple of days and now he 's back up. Edward Jackson has been pretty good for the most part, and obviously that spot is his to lose now the difficult first inning yesterday, but He was terrific for the rest of the game, and you hope he can find what he found the rest of the game throughout the start of the game and the entirety of the game next time. So uh, it's not like there is a a negative vibe permeating here. It's that part of the season where the dog days start to set in, right? It's a long year. We're in the beginning of August, but the team's still winning. It's a 2-3 and road trip right now, but they're still 20 over. They're still comfortably in first. I think Max's injury not being serious was a huge sigh of relief because that's the moment where your season can flash before your eyes. Oh, gosh, the guy who might win the Cy Young, who probably will win the Cy Young if he stays healthy, is leaving a game after an inning. Uh, Once that was resolved, and it was resolved that night, that uh, it wasn't a serious injury, I think everybody took a a deep breath and exhale and said, all right, this is going to be okay.
0: Kevin Brown, part of the Washington Nationals radio network here on The Fan. Uh, he's got one more game today before he's off to uh, whatever he's going to do with the rest of his summer as Dave Jagler returned to the radio booth and Bob Carpenter return to the TV booth but we have Kevin uh, with us for one more day today in Chicago getting to call some games at Wrigley which is always fun. Uh, we talked last week a lot about Eric Fetty uh, and then he went out and made a start. What did you see from Fetty in that start and what do you expect from him today in start number two?
4: Well, I only saw a little bit of it because it was my last day in uh, AAA that day. So we were on at the same time. So I only caught bits and pieces of it. I think he probably pitched better than the numbers would indicate. Uh, I don't think he was four innings, ten hits, seven runs bad in terms of the stuff and and the command. He gave up a couple of bleeders, a couple of slowly hit balls. There was one inning in the fourth where Colorado really did hit him well and square up a few. It's a tough assignment. Today's a tough assignment, too, though. Uh, I'm surprised a little bit at how much he threw the change up compared to the slider. It looked like he threw the change quite a bit more, and he had thrown the slider a little bit more when he was in AAA. So I'm curious to see if that changes today. It's it's a difficult start. You know, I, I don't think that... Dusty and the Nationals would have wanted Fetty's first two starts to be home Colorado and then road Chicago, but at the same time, you don't get to pick, and a major league start is difficult in some ways either way. So I'm hopeful that he'll have that good stuff today, have a little bit better command, a little bit better luck.
0: So uh, as you probably guessed, uh, the fact that I've referenced it 14 times already, we had some fun with the SickNarf loop stock bit. But actually, I I have a serious question on the Michael A. Taylor side of that. So if you missed it earlier in the show, there's a a, a real human being who plays minor league baseball named Sicknarf Loopstock, and he was going for the cycle in a game against the Peanuts the other night, and the, the Potomac walked him. Uh, and that seems petty and ridiculous. And then in retaliation the next day, uh, the uh, Michael A. Taylor, who's down there on a rehab assignment, uh, got intentionally walked twice. You called minor league baseball, Kevin, for seven years. How common are petty, petty things like that versus a respect of trying to give a major league player a real look, um, knowing that at some point you're going to have some guy on your roster who's, who's trying to do the same thing on a rehab assignment?
4: Yeah, I've never seen that. I've seen plenty of rehabbing players in seven years. I've never seen a major league rehabber be intentionally walked. I think petty is a good word there. Potomac, I'm sure, uh, should not have intentionally walked Loopstock in a 9-2 game in the ninth inning. But I'm also sure that Lynchburg's coaching staff should have decided collectively to just be the bigger men there and pitch to Taylor yeah you might lose the game but that's not what the minor leagues are about you have to remember that they're about development you don't intentionally walk especially in the spots he was in you don't intentionally walk Michael Taylor with two outs and nobody on Uh, it's a pretty ridiculous contest of who could cattily one up the other uh, between those two don't walk the guy in a 9-2 game. Let him go for the cycle. And don't walk Michael Taylor with two outs and nobody. Just don't do it. It's, it's very petty. I've never seen that in seven years of doing it. Managers get into it here and there but uh, that is something new that's unique as far as i've heard
0: is there anything like wacky minor league baseball story i mean like wacky minor league baseball you typically think of promotions but in terms of on the field is there anything remotely close to that you can think of like a good story or an interesting thing that you either witnessed or heard
4: Well, wacky promotions is easy because my (laughs) old team went as the syracuse salt potatoes for a game yesterday so that was different. Yeah, I, I I can't think of anything on the field with with that level. I it just I I don't even know if it was wacky. It's just it's just dumb. It, yeah, just p- pitch to the guy. It, it's one of those. I don't whether you believe in, in bad karma or not. There's just there's no benefit to it. There's no benefit for anyone there. There's no benefit to the rehabber. It doesn't make the opposing team look good. It fires up the other manager. I I really can't think of anything like that. I, I, I can hardly think of two managers getting into it. The one time that comes to mind was when we had Tony Beasley five years ago, who's maybe the nicest manager of the world and the least confrontational person. And Wally Backman is so insane that he oh, managed to get Tony into a shouting match. Oh, yeah, he's, to the, get guy, he's the guy who into who's
0: for, match. like, throwing the, grenade, the rosin bag like a grenade, right? Like, that's, that's that I, dude.
4: I mean, w- w- Wally's famous for throwing lots of things like <laughs> things. yeah. That, that's the only time I can remember two managers getting into it, like apparently the Potomac and Lynchburg managers did uh, the other day. And, but that was just because Wally Backman's a crazy person. But I've, uh, I, I've not seen or experienced anything quite like the pettiness of Loopstock v. Taylor and the managers there.
0: It created a, a pretty great on-air banter between you and Charlie that I got to enjoy on my drive down to Richmond. So if nothing else came of that, that was good. Uh, great job this week, yeah. On the and let, games, me, and man. let me just let yeah, me say go this, ahead.
4: by the way. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. We've had some fun with it. We've had some fun this week. And I'm not here to cast a, a, a aspersion on people's names to make fun of names. But listen, we're going to have some fun with it when the guy's name is Sicknarf, When your name <laughs> is Francis backwards, like that—that's cause for us to laugh. If it's so, if
0: you didn't, then Charlie should have kicked you out of the booth. That's right. That's right. And instead, Charlie and if, was like, this is great. I'm in. Lighten up, Francis, which was a great yeah. line.
4: Exactly. And listen, if I name my kid uh, nevek please make fun of him and me forever. Because I, I will ever earned that. Done. He recorded
0: for posterity right here on the radio. Done. Kevin, yeah, spelled properly nonsense. forward. All right, um, that's all I've got for you. I appreciate it. Great job this week. Uh, on to, on to bigger and better things after one more day at Wrigley. Not a bad uh, final, final day on. Not bad work. at all. Enjoy the game, man. See you.
4: Yeah, thanks, thanks to you for having me, and, and thanks to everybody of the Nationals for letting me hijack this thing for a week. It's, it's really been one of the great thrills. Uh, of a life for me, especially at this park. And I'll close by saying that if you're a baseball fan and you've not been to Wrigley Field, uh, you have to rectify that as soon as possible. It's it's a magical place for the baseball, not for anything else, just for the baseball.
0: Agreed, man. Thanks. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Craig. That'll do for this week's edition of the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure you check it out on the radio, at least until football season starts. We're on at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Then uh, rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe right here on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you found this podcast. There's another one with all my interviews from training camp, so you can check that out on this feed as well, no matter where you found the feed. Uh, And that's pretty much it. That's all. Uh, Thanks to everybody who joined. Thanks to John Wall for his time. Thanks to Mike Jones, Sebastian Salazar, Kevin Brown as well. And I'll see you next week on the radio and on the Twitters at Craig Hoffman. I will be in Baltimore Thursday covering Redskins and Ravens. So tweet me there. And that's
3: all I have. I'm out of words to borrow from Pod Save America. End of show.